Well, good morning, church. We're glad you're here this morning, and we are going to begin a brand new series going through the book of Colossians, and this is our title of the series. Now, before we jump into it, you know, I was thinking about a few weeks ago, I was watching TV, and does anybody watch commercials anymore? Anybody? Anybody? No, you DVR and just fast forward through it, don't you? Yeah, I was watching some commercials, and, and, I, and I guess I was watching these commercials, and let's be honest about commercials. Some of them are just terrible, aren't they? I mean, they are ter- now, the progressive ones are pretty cool, but the rest of them are just terrible commercials, and, and, uh, and, this, and also be honest, some of them are extremely inappropriate, amen? I mean, so these commercials there, so I'm watching these commercials, and it dawns on me that, that really what is the purpose of a commercial? The purpose of commercial is to provide something for you so whatever you're pursuing, that that need might be met. So, for example, if you're one of the men in the room and you have no hair and you say, I want hair, maybe Rogaine might be the commercial that speaks to you, right? Or if you're that person or if you're that person that's had a wreck and you've not been adequately compensated, Morgan & Morgan can help you out, right? I mean, you get all these commercials that try to help you with what you're pursuing, and it, and it dawned on me this. And here's what, here's what I say on that. It dawned on me that we live in a world of pursuits, don't we? People are pursuing things all the time. You know, you've got people in the world today, just in the world, that are pursuing things like peace, they're pursuing things like hope, they're pursuing joy, and let's be honest, even as a Christian, don't we have some of those same pursuits in our life? The only difference for us, I think, as Christians is, I think we Christianize our pursuits. And let me tell you what I mean by that. I think we Christianize our pursuits, meaning this. Let's say you're, try, you're, you're at that point in your life and you're like, you know what? I'm really praying that, uh, you know, maybe I can have some security, financial security in my life. And so we know that because we're Christians intuitively, Jesus should be a part of that. But we think, okay, Jesus plus more money equals greater security. And we buy into that. Or Jesus plus a great career equals success. Or Jesus plus a family equals fulfillment. Or Jesus plus anything equals the desired outcome. Jesus plus government, maybe it equals hope. And the point is this, as a Christian, oftentimes we buy into the notion as we want to pursue things in life, it's Jesus plus something that equals whatever we're pursuing. Now, here's the problem with that assumption. Here's the problem with that mindset that many of us, now, we may not say it that way, but that's how we live our lives, right? Are you with me on that? We live our lives that way. And here's the problem with living our lives that way. When we do that, here's what we're saying is that Jesus isn't enough. We're saying that Jesus isn't sufficient. And when we come to the book of Colossians, if there's one theme throughout the entire book is that Jesus is enough, that it's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. In fact, the Apostle Paul, as he builds the book of Colossians, he builds this mindset that Jesus is enough for you. If you're looking for peace, you can find it in Jesus. If you're looking for hope, you can find it in Jesus. If you're looking for joy, you can only find it in Jesus. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And the whole book of Colossians, Paul is building that mindset. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in chapter one this morning, chapter one of the book of Colossians. And as we turn there, really this notion of Jesus is enough or Jesus is sufficient, Paul really highlights this idea in in verses 15 through 23. And that's where he kind of unpacks who Jesus is and who we are, and the truth about Jesus. But before chapter 15, or verse 15, I want to back up, and I want to start with the first 14 verses, because these first 14 verses set the tone 
for what we're going to learn in verses 15 through 23. So Colossians chapter 1, let's just begin to read in verse 1. It says this, Paul, everybody say Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ the Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, we could spend a week in the greeting of Paul, but I wanted to read it because I don't want us to walk away from this idea. Paul starts off with saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, why is Paul starting his letter? He does this a lot. In fact, Galatians, he even does it at a greater level. Why is he starting his letter acknowledging that he's an apostle? Well, if you were to understand Jewish culture, what you would find out is, and the early, the early mindset was this, is that they would literally think that Paul was not necessarily not an apostle. Here's why. Because apostles were eyewitness to the life, the teaching of Jesus. Now, we have no biblical understanding or recollection that Paul was a part of any of the teachings of Jesus, that he was an eyewitness account to anything that went on. However, he was an eyewitness account to the physical Lord Jesus on his road to Damascus, wasn't he? Are you with me on that? So on the way to Damascus, he would, the Jesus appeared to him and says, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul says, you know, because of the encounter, the physical Lord Jesus, I saw I'm an apostle. Now, why would he tell this church of Colossae that he's an apostle? Because apostleship gave him credibility. To say that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ means the words that I'm going to speak to you are not my own, but they are from who? They're from the Lord, right? They're not my own. And he says, by the will of God. In other words, you didn't appoint me apostle. I didn't appoint myself apostle. It's God who appointed me. So right out of the gate, Paul's setting this greeting up, saying, listen, here's who I am. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And what I'm about to tell you, listen, what I'm about to tell you has credibility, not because of who I am, because who's called me to be what he's called me to be, which is an apostle. And then he goes on in verse three through eight. Look what he says. We always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing, as is also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras and beloved my fellow servant, he is faithful minister of Christ of your behalf and has made known to us the love in your spirit. Now, we don't have time to dissect that, but here's what Paul says. Paul says, listen, here's who I am. I'm an apostle. What I'm saying brings credibility, but I want you to know this, that every time I think of you, church, I give thanks for you. And he tells them why he thanks them. He says, first of all, I'm thankful for you because everybody knows about your faith. The people around you know that you're a church that's living a life faithful to the Lord. Now, just think about that for a moment. What if we could interview everybody's neighbors in the room? Now, some of you are like, oh, please don't, right? But what if we could interview everybody's neighbors, interview everybody's people that live on your street or in your area? Would they look at you, would they bear witness that you resemble and reflect Christ and all your encounters and all the things that get broken at your house and how you respond to that and all the things catastrophic that happen? I mean, would they bear witness that you are faithful to follow Christ? And so he says, listen, I'm giving thanks to you because there's evidence. People are no, you are known as a people that are faithful to Christ. But he says, I also give thanks for you because of how you love the saints. I mean, you are loving the people of God. Now, this is important for us because if you've been around here any period of time, we talk about two things a lot. 
And that's that we are called to love God and what? Love people. That's that Jesus says that all of life hinges on those two things, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And we are driven at this church to love God and to love people. And he says, listen, I am so thankful for you, church. You are known for your faithfulness. You are known for loving God and loving people. You are known for how you love saints. So Paul says, with this notion of credibility, I give thanks for you, church. Now, you may look at that and go, that's not a big deal. But Paul wasn't always thankful for the churches. I mean, you go to the church of Corinth. He spent most of his time rebuking the church of Corinth because of all the heinous things that they were doing. But here he says, listen, I'm thankful for you, church. And then look what he does next here before we get into the meat of the passage. He says in verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and the spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you and share in his inheritance of the saints in this light. In other words, he says, listen, I, I'm, a, I'm an apostle. So I'm about to say he's have credibility. But before I get into it, let me first of all let you know I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful that you're known for your faith. You're known for how you love God and love people. But then he says, I also want you to know, Church of Colossae, I'm praying for you. Now, I love that because it wasn't like Paul was just riding in on, on coming from out of town and throwing down the gauntlet going, you know what? You guys are blowing it. Get, to, get your act together. That's not what Paul did. Paul said, I'm thankful for you, but I want you to know, I'm praying for you, church. And did you pick up on what he was praying for? He said, I'm praying that you be fulfilled right? That you'd be filled with knowledge, with wisdom, with understanding. He said, I pray that you'd be filled with those things. He also said, I pray that you would walk in a manner worthy of the calling, that you would continue to live the life of faith that you're already doing. And then he says, I pray that God would strengthen you, that he would strengthen you so that when tough times come, that you might be able to endure with patience, producing joy in your life. Paul says, I'm praying for you, church. Now, listen to me. If you were going to come up and want to rebuke me, all right, if, you, if I had done something to hurt you, and you were going to come up and speak truth into my life, would it be better received on my end if you just showed up with your big list and you pulled out and go, okay, Doug, here's where you're really screwing it up, and I want you to fix all these things. And you start going through. Or if you came up and say, listen, I feel like God has sent me to say something to you. And I want you to know I'm so thankful for how much you love Jesus, Doug. I'm so thankful for how you're doing this. And by the way, I want you to know, Doug, that every day I'm praying for you. I'm praying that God would speak to you and he would use you and he would speak through you. Doug, I've been praying for you. And then you get into your list. Which way am I going to receive it better? The first or the latter? The latter. So it's so beautiful that Paul comes to this church and he lets them know that, hey, listen, here's my credential, but here's my heart. I'm so thankful for you. And I am desperately praying for you. I'm praying for you be filled with wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. I'm praying that you would be strengthened by God. I'm praying that you would continue to walk in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm praying for you. And then these next two verses transitions us to where it wants to go this morning. And he says this in verse 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Now, in this moment, 
Paul reminds him after he says, I'm an apostle, after he says, I'm thankful for you, I've been praying for you. Then he transitions with this verse because in this verse, he reminds them of their story. He says, listen, he has delivered us from darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. He reminds them of their story. Now, why would that be important for this church at this point? Because in Colossae, there were a group of philosophers that were going around and they were teaching philosophies, as we will get into in chapter two a little bit more, they were teaching some philosophies that were contradictory to the gospel message. They were contradictory to the grace, the message of grace that they'd heard. They were contradictory to everything that they had heard from Jesus and been taught by Paul or been taught in the gospel. All the things biblically they've been taught, these philosophies coming along were contradictory. And so Paul goes, you know what? Despite the fact I love you and I'm thankful for you and praying for you, don't ever forget who you are. Don't ever forget who you are. You are broken, wretched, and alienated from God. And Jesus has redeemed us. Don't forget that. Because there's people in the world today, he's saying, there are people, there are philosophies that are coming down the pike. They're going to teach you everything but that. Now, can you, can, you, can you resonate with that being true for us today? There are philosophies in our world today that don't want to talk about the redemption through the forgiveness of our sins, through the, the finished work of Christ. They want to talk about achieving it through works. They want to talk about achieving it through this notion of if enough good outweighs enough bad, and I can tip the balance scales, somehow God will be okay with me. There's philosophies after philosophies after philosophies, even in our world, that take us away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I want you not to forget who you are. And then he begins to build something that is beautiful. He begins to build who Jesus is. And he does it in verse 15. Look at this. Verse 15, he begins to tell us the truth about Jesus. And we're going to break this down. There's four things I want you to write down this morning. Four things that he tells us about Jesus that is amazing. Here's the first one. Verse 15. He is, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. And others, it says, Jesus is the reflection of God. He's the reflection of the invisible God. Now, this word, idea of image or reflection, doesn't mean that Jesus is similar to God. It means that he's the perfect manifestation of God. Are you with me on that? Say amen. amen. He's not saying he looks like God and, and he acts like God. No, 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 no. He's saying he is God. So when he says he's the image of the invisible God, that listen, here's the thing. This God that was once invisible in the person of Jesus, he's made visible. If you want to know what God thinks, ask Jesus. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God values, listen to what Jesus taught. Jesus is God. And one of the reasons Paul kind of acknowledges this is the reason we can know that Jesus is enough. The reason we can know it's not Jesus plus anything. The reason we can know that Jesus is sufficient is because Jesus is God. Do you believe that this morning? He's God. So he says, Jesus is a reflection of the invisible God. Look at me in the rest of verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God, and he's the firstborn of all creation. Meaning this, that Jesus, he is superior to all creation. Not only is he a reflection of the invisible God, but he's superior to all creation. Now this, this idea of this, this firstborn of all creation really speaks to two things. And I want you to track with me because it's a little bit theological, but I want you to track with me. It speaks to two things. First of all, it speaks to the position of Jesus. And second of all, it speaks to the distinction of Jesus. Here's what I mean. Positionally, 
The firstborn of every household, the firstborn son, would inherit what? Almost everything. Two-thirds of everything. The firstborn in that culture, the firstborn son, and those, and there was a few exceptions, Jacob and Esau, you know, Jacob stole the birthright, all that stuff, but the firstborn son would inherit two-thirds of everything. And so it's saying this, that when Jesus being the firstborn of creation, it's not saying that Jesus was created. Please hear me on that. He was not created. Now, I know some of you just went, right? Because you're thinking the virgin birth. Okay, Jesus existed before the virgin birth. He's always been around. I know that that's hard to kind of get our mind around. He was spirit before he was physical. I get all that. And the virgin birth, yes, was the moment he stepped into history. But Jesus has always been around. Jesus is not saying the firstborn of creation, meaning that Jesus was the first one created. It's not saying that. It's saying that he is the only son of God. Therefore, he is the sole heir and sole inheritor of all of creation. In other words, everything belongs to Jesus. Do you remember in Matthew 28 when he finishes his, his last moment, he says, all authority has been given to me. Do you remember that? Before he sends the disciples out, he's saying, listen, I have dominion over everything. So positionally, Jesus is superior to all of creation because he's in control of all creation. Now, the second thing it speaks to is his distinction. Jesus wasn't one of many sons. He was the only son of God right? He was the only son of God. There is no one like Jesus. Now, that is so important for us to know because when you look at the world and there's many people look at him, well, he was, he was, you even read people that aren't sure about Jesus, the skeptics, they go, well, you know, he was a good man. He was probably a good teacher. No, no, no. He was way more than that. He was God in the flesh, and he is superior to all creation. It all belongs to him. He has dominion over everything. And there is no one like Jesus. I mean, there's nobody that can compare to him. Amen? Amen. Nobody. He's superior to all creation. Let me show you a third thing Paul says. Verse 16 and 17. He says this. Verse 16. For by him, everybody say by him. All things were created. And in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Say for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Listen to this. Now is Jesus the reflection of the invisible God. Now is Jesus superior to all creation. Jesus is sovereign over all creation. He is sovereign over it. There's three prepositional moments there that I want you to pick up on. Here's the first one he says. He says, first of all, he says, by him. All was created by him. Jesus was there to create, right? Everything was created by Jesus. And it was, it was created by him, which means all the things that are visible, all the things that are invisible, the angels, the stars, everything we see in creation was created by Jesus. Now, here's why that is a big, big deal for the church of Colossae. is because there was a philosophy that was, that was circulating, that they, and, and I'm going to give you the theological word, and then we're going to unpack it, so don't, don't run away from me. It's the word called Gnosticism, and Gnosticism was a, a philosophy that basically said this, the, the matter and body is bad, spirit is good. So do whatever you want to with the body and matter, but only the spirit's what matters. That's what they taught. And so the fact that there was this, this, this philosophy floating around that would have been fully in the face of what Paul said, 
The philosophy was, listen, a, a, a good God, a great God would never create matter because matter or physical or body is inherently evil. And Paul goes, let me tell you something. Those of you that are, that are hearing that philosophy, let me tell you something. That all things were created by him. Matter, stars, moon, people, everything we see was created by Jesus. Now, why would he say that? Because he wanted the church of Colossae to know that these philosophies were 100% wrong. That everything was created by Jesus himself. Everything was created by him. And then he says, all was created for him. Now, here's what's interesting. As I was studying this a few weeks back, most commentators don't even talk about this phrase. Don't even talk about it. They talk about by him and in him, before him. You know what that means? Listen, here's, here's what it means. That everything created by him means that Jesus created everything. Everything created for him means this. You were created for the pleasure of Jesus. Did you know that? You were created for his pleasure. And I'm not talking about his pleasure like your little dog and he, he's playing fetch with you. I don't mean that kind of pleasure. I'm talking about he created you because he wanted to create you. He created you for your, his pleasure, for his plans, and his purpose. You were created because he wanted you to be created. There was not an accidental creation. Everything was intentional. Do you believe that this morning? See, some of you need to know that because you feel terrible about yourself. You look at yourself and you struggle with your self-esteem and you struggle with your confidence. Listen, my, my God in Psalms 139 says, for I fearfully and wonderfully made you. I knit you together in your mother's womb. You were not an accident. You were intentionally designed by Almighty God. Jesus created you. You were created by him and for him. And because we're created for him, guess what? He desires more than anything else for all of us to be in a relationship with him, right? He says, you were created by him, for him, and then he says, and in him, all things are held together. You know what that means? That Jesus, you remember the, the song when you were a kid that you sang, he's got the whole world in his hands? You remember? I'm not going to sing because it'd be terrible, but you know what I'm talking about? Everybody with me on that one? Okay, only half of you. The rest of you are like, I've never heard that before. Okay, he's got the whole world in his hands. You know what I'm talking about? He's got you and me, sister. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, okay, so we're on that page, right? Here's what he's saying. That Jesus, listen, Jesus is the sustainer of all things. He is the glue that holds everything together. We might fear a hurricane living in Florida, but if Jesus let go of everything, it would all collapse in a moment. He is the sustainer of all things. That all of creation exists and depends solely on him. We were created by him. We were created for him. And all things in him are held together. He is sufficient because he is sovereign. Let me give you one more thing Paul says in verse 18. He says this, verse 18 to 20. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, which means first. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And I know it's a mouthful, but here's what Paul's saying. Jesus is not only the reflection of the invisible God, the manifestation. He's not only superior to creation. He's not only sovereign over creation. Listen, he is the source of our salvation. He's the source. Did you notice what Paul said there? He said, first of all, Jesus is the head. He's the head of the body. You know what that means? That Jesus is the authority of our lives. 
that if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, that you do not belong to yourself. You are not your own. You've been paid for with the price, and that price was the blood of Christ. You belong to him, and he is the sole authority for how you live your life. He said he is the head. He also says that he is the firstborn of firstborn from the dead. Now, you, some of you that are way smarter than I am will go, you know, wait a minute, Doug. Jesus wasn't the first one ever resurrected. Elijah resurrected somebody. Jesus resurrected Lazarus. You're right. But here's what Paul's saying, that Jesus is the first one to ever be raised from the dead in his own power. That he is so much God that in his own power and his own strength, he was able to raise himself from the dead. He's the firstborn, which means he has overcome death, hell, and the grave. The victory belongs to Jesus because of what he was able to do. He's the firstborn. And then he says this, he's the fullness of God, which means this, he was God in a bod, right? He was God in the flesh, that the physical Lord Jesus, while he was 100% man, was also what? 100% God. The fullness of God. Then he says this, and that he is the source of our reconciliation, that he is the source of our salvation, that we are only reconciled to God because of what Jesus did on the cross and putting our faith in that. Now, I just want you to pause for a moment for a minute. Just think about this. Paul had just given them a, a it's, like, it's like drinking water through a fire hydrant kind of information, right? You're the church of, and some of you may feel the same way, like, man, that guy talks really fast, and that was a lot of information. I know, I know, let's listen faster. So anyway, so you've got, you've got Paul, I'm just kidding. So Paul just basically said, listen, I've been called by God, and I'm so thankful for you, church, and I'm praying for you, but I know there's some philosophies that are permeating, and I want there to be no mistake about it. I want you to understand the truth about who Jesus is. He is the physical manifestation of God himself. He is God. I want you to know that he is superior to all creation. It all belongs to him. He has dominion over everything, authority over everything. I want you to know that he is sovereign, that he created all things, and he did it for his pleasure, for his purpose and his plans, and in him he holds all things together. And I want you to know that in him, that he is the source of our salvation. Now, here's what I want you to think about. A God who's so supreme, a God who's so glorious, a God who's so big, was willing to step out of glory and become one of us so that he could bring us reconciliation. Think about that. A God who is perfect, a God who's sovereign and superior over all things, decided, Jesus decided to step out of heaven and to become one of us that we might have our sins forgiven. I would call that awesome. You believe that this morning? That's really good news. Now let's close with this one little section at the end. I find it interesting. Paul doesn't stop there. Paul then goes from the truth about Jesus to the truth about us. This is what he said just real quickly. He said, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Talking about the father. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and which I became a minister. And here's what Paul says. Listen, you and I, with all the truth about Jesus, first of all, you and I are beneficiaries of what God has done. 
We are beneficiaries of what Jesus has done for us. We are beneficiaries of the sacrifice he made. Did you notice there he says, you were alienated, meaning our sins separated us from God. But Jesus came to this earth and died on a cross and his blood was shed so we put our faith in him that we might be reconciled so that he could present us to the Father holy and blameless and above reproach. So that when the Father sees his children, he doesn't see sinful man. He sees righteousness through the blood of Christ. And that's incredible. We are beneficiaries. Now, because we're beneficiaries, Paul also tells us what our responsibility is, that we're to stay stable, we're to stay steady, and we're to stay focused on the gospel message. Now, as I, as I was preparing, I thought, okay, why in the world would Paul end this massive, amazing statements about who Jesus is and the truth of who Jesus is, and why would he end it with the truth about us? And I began, and it just kind of dawned on me, maybe this is why. If the truth about Jesus is that he's sovereign, he's superior, he's our source of salvation, if he is sufficient for the needs we have to meet us and to, and to allow us to be saved, if Jesus alone is sufficient to bring salvation to our lives, isn't he also sufficient to deal with whatever issues we've got in life? Are you with me on that, church? Why would he end by telling them that they're beneficiaries and they have responsibility? I believe it's because he wanted to remind them that if Jesus is big enough to shoulder your salvation, he is big enough to shoulder your marriage. He's big enough to shoulder your finances. He's big enough to shoulder whatever issue you have going on in your life. If he's big enough to save you, he's big enough to carry those things too. And what a beautiful thing for us to know this morning. So I guess there's one question I think we have to ask ourselves in this moment, and it's this. Because Paul has done a great job of reminding us that it's Jesus plus nothing. Because he is the reflection of the invisible God. He is superior to creation. He is sovereign of creation. And he is the source of our salvation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So here's the question for you. Have you been reconciled to God? Has there been a moment in your life where you acknowledge that Jesus is the one that you needed? You were searching for peace, you were searching for hope, you were searching for security, you were searching for fulfillment, and there was a moment in your life when the truth about who Jesus is, that he came to this earth and that he died on a cross, and three days later he rose again, that if you put your faith in him, that you can have the hope of salvation. Has there ever been a moment you did that and therefore God reconciled you, brought you back to himself? And there may be some in the room today go, I'm not. Well, if you haven't, Today, what you've heard is the truth of who Jesus really is. He's not just a man. He's God. And he came because he loves you. He came because he wanted to bring salvation. One of my favorite verses that we never talk about is John 3, 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but through him they might be saved. That's the story for you this morning. And if you've never, if you've not been reconciled to God, you can do it today. You say, well, Doug, you just don't know the junk in my life. You're right. But he does, and he still offers it. The invitation is never rescinded based on the wickedness of somebody's heart. The invitation is always on the table. And if you need Christ as your Savior today, would you just surrender to that? Say, Lord Jesus, I do believe you died on the cross. I believe that you are God, and I believe you're the only one that can forgive my sins. And today, I surrender my life to you. Man, if you'll make that decision, the Bible says that your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life and that heaven will be throwing a party on your behalf right now if you make that decision. 
So if you've never been reconciled to God, would you do that today? And then if you're like me and you're a believer in the room and you have been reconciled to God, has there been moments in your life where you made it Jesus plus something equals whatever you're pursuing? Sure we have. So maybe today what we need to do is repent of that. Repent in those areas where we said, okay, I needed Jesus plus a lot of money to equal some security. Lord, I, I don't need all that. I, I need Jesus because I know Jesus knows my needs. The problem is he knows our needs, but we want him to meet our wants too, right? So I know he knows my needs. And I know which is Jesus and only Jesus. I know that. And maybe we need to repent of that this morning. Maybe we, this morning we need to celebrate the truth that Jesus is enough. That he's all you need. And maybe this morning we need to make a greater commitment to this, a greater commitment than in every area of our life, we first lean and depend on Jesus. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, here's my question for you this morning. You've been reconciled, sure, but do you really believe that Jesus is enough? Do you really believe with everything in you that he is sufficient to meet all the needs in your life? Because if he can shoulder your salvation, I guarantee you, he can shoulder whatever mess you've gotten yourself into. So believer, maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to celebrate. Maybe you need to commit. Whatever you'll need to do, would you be faithful to do it? Let's all stand together if we would. Everybody stand with me. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm just going to ask you to stand. And maybe that person here this morning said, you know what? Doug, I'm like that person who, who's never put my faith in Christ, but today... I mean, I heard a clear message of who he is. Yes, he was fully man, but he was God. And he's above creation, superior, sovereign. He reigns over everything. But you're saying, Doug, he loved me enough that he became one of us to demonstrate that love? Yes, that's what I'm saying. And maybe you're here this morning and you know that. And you just need to say yes to him. If that's you, would you just simply pray something like this? Say, Lord Jesus... I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that you're the only one that can forgive me. And I ask you to forgive me my sins and come into my life and be my boss and master. Man, if you'll pray that, he will change your life. Not only your life, he'll change your eternity. And if you're a believer in the room today, can you just be honest with yourself? that you spend a lot of times and a lot of days pursuing things, and it's always been Jesus plus something. And today you've been reminded it's Jesus plus nothing. And maybe we need to repent where we've tried to add to. Maybe we need to celebrate and be reminded that Jesus is enough. Maybe we need to make a commitment. Whatever you need to do as a believer, would you be faithful to do that? God, I love you. I thank you for today. I thank you for Paul. And I know we covered way too much territory today. But God, I, I just, in my bones, I had to get to verse 15. I had to get to that moment that Paul makes this great declaration of the truth of Jesus. Because God, I think the truth of Jesus could change all of our lives. For those who don't know you, it will change our salvation, it will change our eternity. And for those that do know you, Lord, it will change the way we do life. God, this should be liberating for us to be able to look at the pains in our marriage, the pains in our workplace, the pains in our finances, the pains in our relationships, and go, listen, I don't need what the world offers. All I need is a touch from Jesus. All I need is the wisdom, the understanding, and the knowledge that comes from Jesus. So Lord, I know, sure as I'm standing here, there are people in this room that have a ton of needs, a ton of hurts, and a ton of struggles. And Lord, we know that you're enough. 
But as we lean on you and we depend on you, God, I just pray that you would show up in a powerful way. So God, would you just have your way in this place? For those who have never trusted you, would you open their hearts to that today? For those of us that are believers, Lord, would you wreck us and convict us of how we've tried to add things to our dependence on you? And today we're reminded all we really need is you. God, I love you. And we desperately need you in this moment. For it's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen and amen. If you want to come pray at the altar, you can do that. If you've got a decision to be made, I'll be standing right there. We'd love to talk to you. There's other ways. I'll talk about that a little bit later. If you've made a decision, let us know. But wherever you find yourself today, whether you don't know Christ or you do know Christ, what we heard today is extraordinarily good news. That God loves us so much that he stepped out of glory to become one of us, to offer us the invitation of salvation. And I hope that that, for those of you that don't know him, that that would change today. For those of you who do know him, that that truth would create an urgency and a passion in you like you've never had before. Because Jesus is enough. Let's worship together.